Hello and welcome to the Memory Chapel podcast. Memory Chapel is a small, rural, non-denominational Christian church located on Banceville Road in 84, Pennsylvania. On this podcast, we feature an edited version of our Sunday morning worship service at the chapel and the Bible teaching of Pastor David All. Thanks for joining us. And now, let's get to the worship. Good morning. Welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see you here today. Let us pray. Our Father, we give thanks to you that you have invited us to draw near and worship you through Jesus Christ. The fact that you spared not your own son, but freely gave him for our redemption, for our justification. The fact that He rose from the dead on the third day, now lives interceding for us. These facts make it unmistakably clear that you have invited us to draw near through faith in him. We give thanks to you and we pray, Father, that today as we worship, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth, that we might honor you, Father, by exalting your son, Jesus and enjoy the fellowship of your spirit, which you have given to all who call upon the name of the Lord. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Our call to worship this week comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. The Apostle Peter writes, he says, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves 
heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever gotten something dead wrong? I know I have. And if you have too, we are in good company. I went looking for some famous examples of people who have gotten things flat wrong. And it wasn't difficult to find a bunch to choose from. I thought you might enjoy hearing a few of these. Listen to these examples of people who got things completely wrong. These are from way back in the day. A president of the Michigan Savings Bank had this to say. He said, the horse is here to stay, but the automobile is a novelty, a fad. Western Union internal memo from 1876 reads, this uh, telephone thing has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. Dr. Dionysus Larder, science writer and academic in 1828, He says, rail travel at high speed is not possible because passengers unable to breathe would die of asphyxiation. Time Magazine, 1966, that's a lot more recent. Time Magazine declared, remote shopping, while entirely feasible, will flop. Tell that to Amazon, right? Lord Kelvin, a noted scientist, In 1883, the president of the Royal Society, he declared x-rays will prove to be a hoax. Thomas Watson, chairman of IBM in 1943, declared, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. Most of you carry one in your pocket or on your wrist. (coughs) Daryl Zanuck head of 20th Century Fox Film Studios in 1946, he had this to say about television. He says, television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. Is that a fact? I think those folks missed it just a bit, don't you? Today we're going to look at the remainder of Luke chapter 9. And we will see Jesus' disciples doing a consistent job of getting it all wrong. We will see that it all began with one of them actually getting something right. Let's look at when getting it right prompted the next lesson. That's our first point. When getting it right prompted the next lesson. We turn back to Luke 9, verse 18. Luke 9, verse 18. While Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. Still others, that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. So, 
Peter got it right. Who am I? Jesus asked. You are God's Messiah. His chosen and appointed leader and deliverer of God's people. But this correct answer led to the next lesson. Jesus reveals that his being the Messiah was going to involve things that they were not prepared to accept. And this new lesson was the beginning of them getting a lot of things wrong. Let's look secondly at when the next lesson prompted a long run of getting it wrong. After Jesus revealed that his mission as Messiah involved rejection by the religious authorities and suffering and death at their hands, he began to set his face to go to Jerusalem for the accomplishment of his mission. But before he would commence this journey to Jerusalem, he had one more thing to show to his inner circle of, of apostles. And we pick that up in Luke 9, verse 28. Picking up in verse 28, about eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. As the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. A couple notes on this passage. First century Jews, Jews of that time, they expected that Moses and Elijah would return at the end of the age. This vision that Peter, James, and John saw was certainly consistent with that expectation. Both of these men, Moses and Elijah, had been huge figures in the life of the Jewish nation, representing the revelation of God to his people through the law and the prophets. Moses was the deliverer who had brought them up out of Egyptian bondage and led them to the very borders of the promised land. Elijah was that voice who had called the apostate nation to repentance and faith in the living and true God. In verse 31, it says that Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus about Jesus' departure. This word departure is the same Greek word that is used for the exodus. You remember what exodus is? the second book of the Bible. It's also that event whereby Moses brought the people of Israel up out of the land of Egypt. Exodus, it's the same word here. They were speaking of Jesus's exodus. And the symbolism is too striking to miss. Just as the hand of the Lord used Moses to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt, Jesus would be used to deliver his people from bondage in Jerusalem. What kind of bondage? Spiritual bondage bondage to sin and death. Another note, Peter wants to build three shelters, it says. Why would that be? This is reminiscent of one of the national feasts of the Lord that was prescribed within the law of Moses. I'm talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, or sometimes called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Shelters. Uh, during this 
feast. It was a week-long feast. The people were commanded by the Lord to build shelters or booths, like little huts made of branches and leaves. And they would camp out together as a nation. They'd have a camp out for a whole week of praise to the Lord, worship. Kind of a neat idea, isn't it? The Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. It lasted for an entire week. It almost seems as if Peter wants this experience to last. He's there in the presence of the glorified Jesus. He sees Moses. He sees Elijah. And he says, this is too good to end. I just want it to continue. Let's build some booths, some huts, some shelters. And let's camp out here for a week. Because this is wonderful. Peter makes a critical error, though, doesn't he? He puts Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. God the Father himself moves quickly to correct this fatal error in estimating who Jesus is and the honor that is to be given to him. And this is where we begin to see how Luke documents for us a long run of the disciples getting it wrong. Let's look at seven times in the rest of this chapter. Seven times the disciples consistently got it wrong on the journey to Jerusalem. We begin with a zealous apostle gets corrected in the cloud. We just read about it, or we just talked about it. Let's read about it now. Luke 9, 34. While Peter was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and at that time told no one what they had seen. Peter, in his zeal, had fallen short in his understanding of who Jesus is. No one can deny that Peter was zealous, he was excited, and he wanted the experience to last. But he made a mistake. <coughs> Pardon me. As important as Moses and Elijah had been in being men to whom the word of the Lord had come, Jesus was the word of the Lord. The Father made it unmistakably clear that the disciples were to listen to the one that he had sent, the living word of God, who surpasses and supersedes all of the prophets that came before. But the getting it wrong was just getting started. While Peter was getting it wrong up on the mountain in the cloud, some other disciples had been getting it wrong down below at the base of the mountain. What had been going on at the base of the mountain? Some disciples were showing a lack of faith. Let's read about it as we continue with verse 37. The next day when they, that is Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Just then a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son because he's my only child. A spirit seizes him. Suddenly he shrieks and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth, severely bruising him. It scarcely ever leaves him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Jesus replied, You unbelieving and perverse generation. 
How long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. When they came down off the mountain, the first thing they're confronted with is this news. Jesus' disciples were unable to drive out a demon. This would have been a major step backwards from earlier in the chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, we read about how Jesus had commissioned his 12 apostles and he had sent them out after having first given them power and authority to heal all diseases and to drive out demons. Jesus spends a little bit of time on the mountain and he comes back down. And the first thing he's confronted with is, I asked your disciples but they couldn't help. Jesus, you can almost sense his exasperation and frustration at this point. He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Who's he talking to? Is he talking to the father of the boy? I don't think so. I think he's talking to his disciples who had failed miserably to do something that he had empowered them and commissioned them to do. Jesus notes that it is because of unbelief that they're unable to help. And he knows his exodus, his departure is coming soon. He has poured so much of himself over the bit of time that they've had together over and over again. He's poured into these disciples and still he comes back to find they're at this same point where he had initially found them, a point of small faith. And unbelief. He takes this occasion of their spiritual failure to once again teach the lesson that they had not understood a week earlier. Let's continue reading to see how all of the disciples were spiritually dull and afraid to ask for insight. We pick up in verse 43, the second half of the verse. It says, All the people were astonished at the greatness of God when Jesus healed this this boy who had been afflicted by the demon. While everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, Jesus told his disciples, let these words sink in. Pause. I know that you are still unbelieving and faithless. Let these words sink in because I don't have long to get this point across to you. Let these words sink in. The son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. A week ago, I know I taught you this. You didn't get it. We've got less time now than we had a week ago. Let it sink in. I am about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand the statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. Jesus continued to impress upon them the essence of his messianic mission. But they simply couldn't conceive how Messiah could fail to conquer his enemies. How could he fall to his enemies? What's worse than their spiritual dullness is this. None of them asked for clearer understanding. Think of it. They didn't understand. They could have done something about that, right? They could have asked. And in their unbelief, they were too afraid. I think that spiritual malaise does this to us. 
spiritual dullness. Rather than seeking wisdom from God, we stumble on in our stupor. That's what they did. As far as getting it wrong was concerned, these disciples were just getting started. The next thing we see is that they were arguing. But what was their disagreement about? In the next section, we see some disciples arguing over position and prominence. This is the fourth thing that they were getting wrong. Luke 9, pick up in verse 46. An argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him. He told them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. The disciples, who have at this point begun to string together epic fails one after the other, now add to their tally by bickering over prominence and position in Jesus' administration. Jesus has to humble them by directing their attention to a child that he brings to stand by his side. So you guys want to argue over who's important? You boys want to duke it out over who's the most prominent? I'll show you what matters to me. And he brings a humble child to stand at his side. While the disciples are all jockeying for position, who's going to be at Jesus' right hand? Jesus brings a little child over. True greatness, Jesus teaches them, is found in humility and service to others. <laughs> You'd think that maybe the lesson would sink in, but it went right over some of their heads. In fact, one of the disciples, John, takes this as his cue to inform Jesus of something really worthy that they had done. John and some other disciples show a party spirit. And when I say a party spirit, I'm not talking about being party animals. I mean that John and some of, his, some of the other disciples were showing an attitude for forming factions, parties, like political parties. Let's look at verses 9, 49 and 50. John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow us. Don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. We aren't told who it was that was driving out demons in Jesus' name, but ironically, whoever it was, this unnamed disciple who wasn't part of the group, he was having success doing it while Jesus' apostles were failing at the base of the mountain. In the interest of preserving their exclusive fellowship with Jesus, some of these disciples have rebuked this follower of the Lord who had been doing this ministry on his own. What a surprise it must have come to John when Jesus, instead of thanking them or praising them for being on top of things, he actually rebukes them for taking it upon themselves to put a stop to this man's ministry. <laughs> But John was about to make another big error. Next, we will see as James and his brother John show a vengeful spirit. Picking up in verse 51. When the days were coming to a close for Jesus to be taken up. We're speaking about his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. When the days were coming to a close, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. 
He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him. Why? Because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. You see, Jews and Samaritans, they didn't get along. Maybe they would have welcomed Jesus if they understood that he was coming just to spend time just with them. But the fact that he was going to be visiting with them and then going on to Jerusalem, they said, nah, you can go on to Jerusalem, Jesus. You're not welcome here in our town. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? We'll burn them up right now. But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You don't know what kind of spirit you belong to. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy people's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. What do you say to something like this? I mean, I don't think James and John had ever called down fire from heaven before. But they are confident that they can carry it out if Jesus just says the word. We'll burn up these people who have insulted you and rejected you. Maybe it was the experience up on the mountaintop. Remember, James and John were there for that. Seeing Moses and Elijah, maybe that had put these two brothers in mind of how those notable prophets of old had worked mighty wonders of judgment that included calling down fire out of heaven. It's almost like James and John are saying, these Samaritans, they're not even Jews. They're like on a lower level than us. And they have the nerve, the audacity to reject and insult the Lord? Well, God will judge them and we will be his willing agents of divine vengeance. And just look at the faith that we're displaying, Jesus. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume him, to to consume them? Just say the word, Lord. We're full of faith now. We can do this. Jesus rebukes them for their vengeful spirit. And he elaborates that he has not come to destroy people's lives. No, he's come to save them. The journey to Jerusalem would proceed as planned. An appointment with a cross was calling. They couldn't understand that. Along the way, Jesus would continue to call and challenge would-be disciples. But we're going to see potential disciples show a lack of commitment. And that brings us to our seventh failure. Picking up in verse 57. As they were traveling on the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Well, maybe not so much, Jesus. Maybe not anywhere you go. Then Jesus said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first, let me go bury my father. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Now, before you think that Jesus is being incredibly harsh, let me explain. This man's father had not died. The man was using an expression. This was his way of saying that if he were to start a new life as one of Jesus' disciples, his father wouldn't understand that. His father didn't believe 
in this prophet from Nazareth, Jesus. And if he were to go follow Jesus, well, his father would reject him, would probably disown him, probably disinherit him. So he's telling Jesus, you know, I can't do that now because if I were to follow you right now, well, things with my dad, like he just wouldn't understand. Let me bury my father. That's his way of saying, when my father passes, and it might be years from now, then I will be in a situation where I can come follow you, and I will. I'm telling you, I'll follow you. I'll follow you when I don't have to worry about rejection or disinheritance, losing out. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, this guy is saying, I'll follow you after I've dealt with some more important or pressing matters. Jesus' challenge was firm. You can't follow me and look back. Just like a man plowing a field can't hold a straight line if he's looking around, neither can the one who's preoccupied and focusing on other matters be fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, I learned this when I was learning how to ride a motorcycle. It's a little thing called target fixation. What you look at is what you'll hit. If you see a pothole in the road and you want to make sure to miss that pothole, so you look at that pothole so you know you can, you'll, you'll hit that pothole. Target fixation. You'll hit what your focus is on. If you want to make a sharp turn on a bike, you physically turn your head and you look where you want to go and the bike will just follow. It goes right with you. You will hit what you're focused on. Jesus is telling that much here. He's saying, no one who wants to follow me, who wants to enter the kingdom of God, is going to hit the mark if they're distracted, focused on other things. No man who puts his hand on the plow and turns around and looks behind him is going to be able to hold a straight line. Not fit for the kingdom. Seven times in this half of the chapter, here in Luke chapter 9, we've seen Jesus' disciples consistently get it wrong. But let's see if we can find some application for ourselves in the mistakes that they made. When we saw Peter in the cloud getting it wrong, he had zeal, there is no doubt, and he won the experience of Jesus' glory to continue he wanted to get to enjoy it longer, and I believe any one of us would feel the same way. But Peter made one critical error in his zeal. He placed Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. And he got corrected for it. What do we learn from it? Simply this. Put Jesus in the first and highest place, which is his due. Exalt him. The Father is honored when we exalt his Son. Exalt the Lord Jesus. He's in a class of his own. There's none other like him. The second mistake, we saw some disciples at the base of the mountain. They were lacking faith, unbelief. This is at the center of it. Simple trust in God. Simply trusting the Lord. The scriptures had this to say about Abraham. He trusted God and God counted it for righteousness. And the scriptures also say that this was not only true about Abraham, but it will also be true for us. Those who place their confident trust, their faith in God and his promises will be counted right with God. But do we trust him? 
Or does our faith at times, like those disciples, does it falter? Do we doubt God's goodness? Do we doubt his faithfulness? How about it? Think about that. The Lord calls us to simple, childlike faith and trust in him. We have to get it right. That's at the center. The third mistake we saw, the disciples were spiritually dull. They just couldn't get it. But not only could they, couldn't they get it, they were afraid to ask. And that's the big mistake there. Look, I read this book just like you do. And there are things in it that are hard to understand. And there are things that I still don't understand. And I'm sure the same is true for you. And that's okay. It's okay to not have all the answers. But it's not okay to not care about that. Ask. And I mean it truly. Ask. Ask people in your life who are reliable followers of the Lord. Ask them for insights. Share your insights with them. Ask. Here's the most important one. Ask the Father himself. I do it often. There are things I have questions about. And just in conversation with the Lord, I ask him. I say, Father, here's this passage. I've read what this guy says. I've read what this guy says. I know what the different theological views are about this. What do you think about it? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not expecting to hear an audible voice from the cloud like Peter, James, and John heard. But I do expect that the Lord will lead me into answers, and I've found it to be true that the Lord has led me into answers. But ask. Ask him what he thinks about it. Ask him to lead you into truth. You know, for me, this is such a huge thing because not only do I want to not get it wrong for myself, but as one who teaches others, I don't want to lead anyone else into error or confusion. It's, it's a big deal for me. It ought to be a big deal for all of us. Ask the Father. And you're going to find that there are things that he will teach you. And there will be other things that maybe the answer ends up being, I'm not ready, rather, you're not ready to learn this yet. And then, of course, there are things that maybe we never learn on this side because we don't really need to know them because it's not critically important. But keep asking. Don't be afraid to ask. The fourth mistake we saw them make, they were arguing over prominence and position. Who's the greatest? Jesus taught humility by bringing a child to his side. He said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You have to be humble. The path to greatness in God's kingdom runs through the valley of humility and service to others. Three mistakes more that they made. John and some other disciples, they showed a partisan spirit, factions, divisions. But unity in the body of Christ is the ideal and the goal. In our study last year of Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, we saw a church that was very much caught up in partisan attitudes, division. I follow Paul. I follow Peter. I follow Apollos. What's the correct attitude? Generosity. Love, humility. Each one of us looking upon the other as better than ourselves, Looking out not for our own interests, but for the interests of others. That brings unity in the body instead of division. If we're concerned about our place or position, 
or how big we look, that just creates division and disunity. The sixth mistake, James and John, oh, they showed a vengeful spirit. We'll pay those people back for you, Jesus. Just say the word. We'll call down fire out of heaven. But love and compassion, love and compassion towards brothers and sisters, mercy towards those who are on the outside, that's the rule of the kingdom. Jesus said to them, you've got no idea what kind of spirit you're of. There's no place for vengeful attitudes, for resentment, for unforgiveness in the kingdom of God. Among brothers and sisters, love, compassion towards those who are outside the family of faith. Mercy. There's no room for resentment and hard hearts. Understand, these things are not peccadilloes that God is willing to wink at. These are heart issues that he will deal with if we don't. The last failure was one of potential disciples showing a lack of commitment. Understand, Jesus hasn't changed the terms or conditions. Following him, he says it's total commitment. 24-7, 365. Sunshine followers, they're in abundance, but Jesus calls upon his disciples to live sold-out lives in commitment to him. And you might remember that bit about taking up our cross daily. Daily dying to self and self-interest. Surrendering and submitting our will to the will of God. Loving not our own lives unto death. Those weren't metaphors. They weren't figures of speech. He really means it. I invite you to return often to Luke chapter 9. It's written for our instruction. Consider the ways in which the disciples consistently got it wrong. At that time, they were failing and falling on their faces over and over and over again. Consider those things and reflect upon how we ourselves can fail and can fall just as flat as they did. And understand that within each of these failures, there is a lesson. There is a corrective lesson that points us to a proper understanding of what it really means to follow the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that in your word, you have revealed not only the good things, the positive things, but also the mistakes, the stumblings, the failures along the way. We can learn from the lives of these men and women who failed to understand, who failed to ask, who failed to commit, who failed to have faith, who failed to show love and generosity as they jockeyed for position, prominence, and displayed sometimes vengeful and unforgiving spirits. Father, from their failures, we can recognize our many failures as well. And we can learn. We thank you that you are patient with your people and you invite your people to learn, to take your yoke upon them and learn of you. Because as you told us, Lord, your yoke is easy, your burden is light. Father, we pray that we would take your yoke upon us, become true followers of you, and learn what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen. Jesus has been made for us the wisdom of God. He is God's true word. He is the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased and upon whom he has set his stamp of approval. And the father invites you. Listen to him. He has the words of life. Take his yoke upon you. Learn from him. Know what it means to be a follower, a disciple of the Lord. We will fail along the way, just as those apostles of long ago did. But we will learn, will we not? We will rise up because we are joined to him. We are in him and he in us. God dwells in the midst of his people. He is their God. He calls us his people, his very own, the apple of his eye. Trust in his goodness. Seek his help in times of difficulty. May the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be with you today, this week, and forever. Amen. Thank you for having tuned in with us today. We hope you found the time in worship and the word to be encouraging, challenging, and strengthening. If so, we'd love to hear from you. We realize there are so many ways you could spend your time. We're glad you chose to spend it with us in worship and the word. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all today, this week, and forever.